This morning we're in Genesis chapter three. And uh, we're gonna talk about gifts here as we start. You know, this is the season for gift giving, isn't it? Do you know that Americans don't deal well with gift giving? Have you noticed that? I mean, let me explain what a gift is. It is something that is given from one person to another person. Huge stuff right here, right? It's not earned, it's not won, and it's not achieved. It's a gift. It's given without expectation or compensation, and that's a gift. But in America, we don't like gift giving. We are frankly not good at it. It makes us uncomfortable. I mean, think of the main figure in our cultural Christmas. Who is that? Santa Claus. And you think, well, Santa loves gift giving. No, he doesn't. He doesn't understand gift giving. He doesn't do gift giving at all, does he? Right? You better watch out. I'm not going to sing it. You better not cry. Better not pow. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town, and he's making a list, checking it twice. Finish it. Yeah, see, you all know, you've all been indoctrinated in this. There's no gift giving in that, right? Santa's not about gift, giving gifts at all. He's all about rewarding people. He's making a list, he's checking it twice. Who's, who's naughty, who's nice? We know, we know what happens, right? The nice kids get gifts and the naughty kids get what? Cole, see, that's not gift giving. He's a fraud. He's a product of our American way. See, in America, it's all about compensation. He's about finding out who deserves something only because they've earned it. And can you see now how this has affected our culture? It's affected you, whether you admit it or not. All of you knew that song. It affects you to the core. How do you feel when someone is opening a gift that you spend a lot of time thinking through, and even a lot of money on getting it, and you, you give them the gift, and you're just excited, and they open up and they go, meh, does that make you feel? Or perhaps someone's standing in front of you, and you didn't expect anything, and they, they hold this beautiful wrapped gift. You can tell they've put time, and they hand it to you, and you stand there thinking, I don't have anything to give to them. How does that make you feel? You don't like it, do you? You feel obligated now, don't you? You see, giving gifts without any warning, without any discussion beforehand at Christmas means then that you are in their debt when they give you a gift. This is Christmas in America. You see, people don't give gifts. People make trades wrapped in pretty cloth and paper. That's what Christmas is. That's the point of Christmas. It's a gift exchange. It's why you set a limit on money that you should spend in a group setting when you're going to gift exchange, right? So, so feelings don't get hurt. It's a gift exchange. And, and, and the more even the exchange is, the better we feel about it. That way, no one feels like they're in some sort of debt because they don't want that pressure in their life. We don't know how to accept a gift because... When we do, we open up ourselves and we become vulnerable. And really, vulnerability in America is a no-no. Don't let anyone see you sweat. 
Remember that phrase from the 80s, the commercial? I think it was about a deodorant. You've got to cover up yourself. You've got to put on that smiley face. You've got to push through and not show that anyone can ever see any needs or cracks in your life. That is the American way. Look at me, I've got everything under control. But does the Bible teach us that? Does the Bible teach us to protect ourselves from everyone, to hide and to cover? And I've been praying this week that as we look at the word of God this morning, that we would look with some humility and some vulnerability. Because there's something here for every one of us this morning. And it really all begins by pausing to think deeply of Christmas. Why do we celebrate Christmas as Christians? You know, this world in which we live loves Christmas. But they really love Christmas for a totally different reason than we as, a Christ, as Christians. They want to forget all of the bad stuff in life, and so they celebrate Christmas to do that. But Christmas, as Christians, should remind us every year of how bad we truly are. It should look to that. But Christmas doesn't leave us there. Christmas shows us a great magnitude of what God did to take care of our bad. Christmas shows us clearly that God would not leave us in our badness. This morning, we're going to look at the beginning, the need for Christmas. We're going to look at Genesis 3. So if you haven't turned there, turn in your Bibles to Genesis 3. It may seem odd to have Genesis 3 be the focal point of a Christian, Christian and Christmas message. I mean, usually we look at Luke that we read, and we mentioned that earlier, or Isaiah. But Genesis 3 is where we find the need for Christmas. George Whitfield once remarked about this passage that it could be accompanied by glad tidings of great joy, for this is the first promise that was made of a savior to the apostate race of Adam. There isn't any jingle bells, there isn't any sleigh rides here this morning, but I, I, what I want to do is bring your attention to the first mention of the need of Christmas and the promise of the gospel. So as we turn to Genesis 3, we're, we're not turning to the city of David, but to the Garden of Eden. And I want you to listen carefully as we dive into the story of redemption prophesied long ago. There, there's no evergreen trees in the story decked out with tinsel and lights, but there's a significant tree in this story in the center of the garden. This is the Christmas story, and it's significant for us. Genesis 3, starting at verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. 
He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because, of this, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And jump down to verse 20. And the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. This morning, we'll look at three areas. If you're taking notes, it should be in the handout that you received when you came in. Three points there. The, the battle begins. We see in the passage, the fall happens and the promise given. The battle begins, the fall happens, and the promise given. And before we look here, let's pray. So I encourage you, if you would pray for me as I preach, I'll pray for you as you listen. Father, we thank you for this morning. And we come before your, your mighty throne this morning asking that you would give a clear understanding as we study Genesis 3. As we enter in and in the midst of the Christmas season, we ask that you would keep our hearts centered on the true meaning of this holiday. Father, as we gather with family and meet with friends and exchange gifts and sing songs, remind us of the battle long ago in the garden. Remind us of the fall of mankind and how you didn't leave us to fend for ourselves, but you sent a rescuer to cover us. Father, I pray that you would help your people this morning in worship as, as they hear your word preached, that you would give them understanding and conviction and change to their life. And we ask this all in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. So first, we, we begin where the battle begins. We enter Genesis 3, we're entering a war, really. And in fact, Mary, as she recites her song that, that Pastor Ryan read earlier in Luke 1, it's, it's better labeled a war hymn. Luke 1, her psalm is a, a war hymn. Then it's, it's not a Christmas carol. It's a, it's a war hymn. She says, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. It's, this is a, a villain in mind that Eve has here when she talks about the proud. This is not have yourself a merry little Christmas. This is war. There is an enemy and there's a victor. And so in Genesis 3, when Moses relates the story of the fall, he uses the word enmity, which talks about meaning hatred and strife and hostility. Friends, this is war. It's warfare, and it comes at a time of peace. Just when things are calm and seemingly under control, chaos comes. Isn't that the way it is for our lives, too? It's when things seem to be going normal. Things are going to be well. We get into a groove of life, and out of nowhere, a bomb drops right in the midst of our laps. See, war is knocking at the door of Adam and Eve, but how did they get here? What, what brought about this war? For that answer, we begin at the beginning of the, chapter 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Even though this was a real serpent, it was taken over by Satan and spoke as him. This is why I don't like snakes. Anyone with me? You know, we were at the church camp out and all these kids were bringing snakes and they would bring them to my campsite and I just stood there and said, leave. Ashamed of all your parents encouraging this behavior. And this, this slithering creature 
sought out to destroy the human race. And please notice in the passage we read, and you've heard it before, he doesn't make them sin. He asked some questions. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God actually say? What a damning question. Satan is not here doing market research as is to see that they like one fruit better than other fruit in the trees. He's, he's mocking God. He's making fun of God and his question to them. He's trying to get Eve to laugh at God. Don't you see it? Did God actually say that? Oh, what God? What a fool. He's mocking him. He's not saying that God didn't say it. He's not even redefining it. No, he's mocking him. He's ridiculing God, and he wants Eve to join in as well. He's not denying it, but he's casting doubt on God. Therefore, the, the fall of the human race starts not with an action or even a thought, but with an attitude of the heart. And this is true for many in our world today. Most don't lose their faith in God because of an argument. Not, most don't, but most lose because of an environment. An atmosphere of, of snickering. An atmosphere of laughing at God. It's a snarky thought, the snarky questions. Do you really believe that God says that? Do you really believe that God would have you do that? The snarkiness behind it. The mocking. But your life to follow God, it's so silly. It pressures people into questioning. And it's all environment. Most of your kids if they're going to be tempted to leave, God won't happen with a lofty argument. Some, but it will come with the mocking of God in this world. It will come through a type of peer pressure from this world. It will come because they aren't willing to be thought as, as foolish for following God in this world. It will come through those that say they love God and follow God. Those in the church who then in their lives never display it. It's a mocking of God. So if you're ever questioned this way to go along with a mocking of God, a, a measured response would be, you seem to be shaming me to not believe in God, but that's not an argument. So can you tell me what I believe is really unbelievable? And then we need to be saturated, so saturated in the word of God and the truth of God's word. When those questions come, we can discern between right answers and, and wrong truths and lies. See, Satan lies to Eve. It's a lie for the mind to comprehend. He's, he's questioning God. In fact, he's lying to them. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. It's a lie. It's because it's redefining truth for them. He's saying, if you obey God, he will keep you down. He, he doesn't want you to be fully realized. He wants you to be shackled. God wants to hold you back. And if you obey him, you'll miss out. You see, he goes after something different than we expect. He doesn't go after the existence of God. Atheists are just silly. Satan will continue to keep them blinded, but he laughs at them. He knows there's a God. He doesn't go after their belief of God here in Genesis 3. God was there. They just talked to him. To doubt his existence would be foolish. Satan goes directly after the goodness of God. He is questioning who God is. He's questioning God's goodness. He is calculating a way to, to, to question Eve. Does God really have 
good things planned for you, Eve. And you trust God with your life. It's when that lie went into the heart of man. And it's in your heart as well, friends. The lie to doubt the goodness of God. That's why people say, I know that the Bible says that I shouldn't cheat and get ahead, but this looks like the right way, and it looks like it will solve all of my problems. So essentially doubt the goodness of God, that he's going to walk through that hard and difficult time. And they do what's contrary. Or I know that I shouldn't hold this grudge against this person and try to seek revenge, but they really hurt me. For years they hurt me, and this feels better. So you're tempted you know why you're tempted? You know, that there would be no temptation, none, if you weren't already deep down underneath, already deep inside of you, already believing that God isn't trustworthy. If you all weren't already questioning the goodness of God. And from that moment in the garden, we have these doubts lingering inside of us. Can God be trusted? There are people right now who are working themselves to death because they're trying to prove to themselves and to everyone else that they're valuable because they don't love and trust God. And along the way, they don't trust others, all because they refuse to trust God. They've been ruined by the lie that God is, in fact, good. See, it all comes back to God's goodness. George Whitfield said of this, we may be assured we are fallen into and begun to fall by temptations when we begin to think God will not be as good as his word. See, Satan centers his accusations against God with a question of his goodness to man. Why would God love you and then withhold something from you? So innocent as an apple. Have you thought about that deep, deeply? I mean, he's, he's questioning. You can't possibly think that you'll die if you eat fruit, do you? He, he twisted. He, in fact, if you eat it, you'll be like God. This is for your advancement. You have to do this or God will hold you back. And so verse six, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she takes it. She saw it was good. The Hebrew word for saw literally means to see, to have sight, to understand with her eyes. She, she hears with her ears and sees with her eyes, and she took of the fruit and she ate. And she handed it to her husband also. And you might think, and I've heard this before out in the world, so what's the big deal? It was just fruit. It's just an apple. Is that what we're talking about here? Are we talking about an apple here that plunged the human race? An apple? Is that it? I mean, what's, the such, what's such a big deal that a tree was that important that it would ruin generations to come? See, the, the logic behind that, the, the prohibition behind it, God says you can do anything. It's paradise, but don't touch that tree. What's so bad about the tree? What was so bad about eating fruit? What if God had actually given them an explanation as to why? Maybe you thought that. Maybe, maybe the problem here that God, you should have explained to them why they shouldn't have eaten from that tree. 
Right? You know, what, what, well, if you eat from this tree, there will be infinite suffering and misery and death for the rest of human history. And they would have gone, hmm, never mind. There's a whole lot of, I mean, there's other trees in the garden. So if that's the, the, the issue, then I'm, I'm going to avoid that tree. Right? Well, it's important to understand why God didn't give them an explanation. Because if he had, they wouldn't have eaten from the tree. Why? Because it's a cost-benefit analysis. It's really what's, what's driving it here. They would have looked at it and said, oh, it's not worth it. They, they would have said, oh, I'm going to avoid that because the benefit outweighs the cost. But that's not what God was after. Or he was after their hearts. He was after obedience. And this whole story is about them being in control and not submitting their lives to God. That's staying in control. God, give me an explanation. Give me the details here because they want to be in control. God is teaching Adam and Eve that this world is his and they were placed here by God so they need to trust themselves to him, to, to obey him and what he says. Their lives are a gift. This garden is a gift. God is the one who sustains it. It isn't something for you to do with any way you want. And so for them, not eating from that tree is an opportunity for them to show their obedience to God. They can choose to treat God as God and treat their life as God planted in submission to him, or they can act any way that they want and put themselves in place of God. And the serpent knows this, and that's why he says, take the fruit, and you will be like God. He was right. They wanted to be like God. In fact, they wanted to be God, to be in complete control. And this is our problem as well. It is people putting themselves in the place of God. That's the problem. This is where the battle begins in the garden. Friends, do you see yourself in this battle? Do you feel this tendency inside of you? Deep down, you want to be in control of your life. When God says, I need to be in control. That's why you can so easily dismiss his word. That's why when things tumble out of control, there's a battle right now in your heart for God to be God. Or for you to cling on to that, to be God for yourself. And who's going to win? Do you need a, a cost-benefit analysis to obey God? Or is his word enough? See, the battle is underway. The next point is the fall. Look at verse 7. And the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. See, Satan was right. Uh, their eyes were open. And what was their first realization? Their nakedness. Here's a good Christmas sermon. We're going to talk about nakedness. Well, seriously, we are. And the Lord God comes again 
just like he would daily in the cool of the day to walk with them, but they're not found. No, they're hiding. And God calls to them and asks the first question, where are you? Now, he knows exactly where they are, okay? God is a wonderful counselor, though, and he begins his first counseling session with the couple by asking some good questions. Where are you? Where have you gone? And Adam responds, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid in myself. Naked? Naked, Adam? Who told you you were naked? Adam, you've always been naked. This isn't new. I mean, at the end of chapter 2, it says, and the man and his wife both, excuse me, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. But now they're naked and they are ashamed. What has changed? It wasn't that they were physically blind, they couldn't see their own nakedness, no. They knew it, but it didn't bother them before. Now they have a new consciousness, a new awareness of their nakedness, and it leaves them feeling guilty and ashamed. See, the minute that Adam and Eve disobey God, they have to have complete control of the information about themselves. To be naked is to be known. It's to be vulnerable. They had no issue whatsoever to be naked before they sinned. It was of no consequence to them. They were comfortable with it. They were open and unashamed. They were fully known by each other and by God, and where there was no distress To be naked, though, is to be out of control of the information that someone is getting about you. That is why when when you go to the beach and you wear a bathing suit, it's perfectly normal. But then you're invited right after that to go to a wedding ceremony, and if you have no change of clothes and wear that bathing suit, there's a problem. It causes shame. It causes you want to hide. It's the same suit, but you can't control the things now in that environment. And to be vulnerable to to someone is to be open, to be unable to control the information the person is getting about you. And being exposed is horrifying for us. But the scripture tells us that we were built to be known and to be loved. But we have bought the lie that we can only be loved if we are not fully known. Most of us feel like the best we can do is just to be loved. This is the human condition now. This chapter tells us that we we feel like the best we can only do is to be loved if we just hide ourselves, if we're not fully known. You see, as soon as sin happened, as soon as they disobeyed God, vulnerability became a very painful thing. They know that they are naked now. They know that there are flaws and they have to have control because they've lost control of the information about themselves. Nakedness in the, in the Bible is about being vulnerable, being unable to control people's knowledge about yourself and your flaws and your weaknesses and how you're unacceptable. And all of us are afraid of being exposed for who we really are. If someone were to truly see who we really are, we know that they would reject us. We're not only hiding from everyone, hiding our nakedness, we're hiding from ourselves. We cannot bear the thought of admitting to ourselves our own failures. 
Adam and Eve truly lose something significant here. They were created perfect. They were created to live in paradise. They were created to have perfect fellowship with the almighty and loving and patient God. Originally built to be known, fully known, and fully loved by God. But now they believe they can't have both. And we want both. But we feel like the best we can do is to be loved. Because if someone really exposes us, if someone really looks to the bottom of us and sees that we don't live by principle all the time, that we don't live even up to our own standards, then we'll be crushed. And we don't want people to see how anxious we really are, how upset we really get, how depressed we are, how unhappy we are, how disappointed we live, how truly weak we are. So we, we work so hard to control the information about ourselves to others. That's why we're so quick to even ignore the truth about ourselves. We're even hiding from ourselves when we control the information. And we believe that we have to. Do you know that every person in this room, every one of you, you know that there are two eyes out there that see all of you. Everyone knows this. Everyone knows we stand before God. And we stand before him naked, unable to cover ourselves, unable to cover who we truly are. There are two eyes that see us, that see all of us. And they're perfect eyes. They're just. And they're truthful eyes. And they're holy. And they're righteous eyes. Hebrews tells us, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We know that God is watching. We know that there is a, a reckoning coming, and we need to control the information about ourselves. But God knows. He sees all. He knows us, and he sees us. You see, Adam and Eve didn't lose their clothes when they took the bite. They never had any physical clothes. They lost something, though. They lost their righteousness. They lost their acceptability. They lost their greatness. They lost their glory. They lost their purity and their holiness. Those were the things that allowed them to stand before God without any fear, completely vulnerable. They were once able to stand before God, to walk with him without any shame, without any doubts or fears. But they lost it, and they feel inadequate. They, they feel small, and they, they can't stand to be fully known. They, don't you feel it in your own life, though, friends? Don't you fully understand what Adam and Eve experienced in that day? Do you see yourself here? And our solution in life is to cover up. The one thing we cannot escape from here in this passage this morning is our desire to cover up our nakedness. We need that covering. We can run and hide from God, but he's there and he knows us. You, 
You cannot hide yourself and you cannot hide your sin. It will be dealt with. There's no denying it. It will be exposed for what it truly is. But we believe the only way that I will be loved is if I cover up my sin. I need to hide it from others. And Adam and Eve do this. I need to hide in the midst of life and in the things of life. And Adam and Eve do this as they hide in the trees. I need to hide from the truth. And Adam and Eve do this when they blame someone else out of themselves. And we can try to blame shift like Adam and Eve, who said when they asked by God if they ate from the tree, they, they blame shift, right? The woman says, or, or the man says, the woman who gave to me, it was you gave her to me and she gave it me the fruit. It's her fault. And the woman says it was the serpent who deceived me. See, blame shifting. I mean, isn't this daily in our world? Spend three minutes on any news outlet. You're going to find that with the political mess, shockingly, it's everyone else's fault. Just once, I want to have someone say, it was my fault. But they don't. Why? They have to cover. They have to cover up. I mean, that's the name of the game. Cover up and hope that no one uncovers you for who you really are. But the world, everyone knows they're naked. They know it. You see your own nakedness. You, so you're sure that you cannot be known and loved at the same time. And we see this in our world today. Take, for example, dating relationships. Dating is like buying a used car. Log that away, young kids. They're always trying to cover up something. In dating, you're covering up your flaws, your sins, the things in your life that you're ashamed of. You, you want to put your best foot forward. So if your apartment is a complete mess, you either decide to meet somewhere else or perform the first deep clean that your apartment ever seen. And you dress in a different way to find clothes that, that hide your flaws. You, you want to look good for the ladies. They, they wear makeup or put on perfume. For men, they finally shave and comb their hair. And then when you're out on the date, you direct conversations to topics that you know and you understand because you don't want to get into a discussion that you don't know and don't understand because that will make you look weak or foolish or helpless or confused. You want to see, but not to be seen. All of which are ways you're covering up. But outside of relationships, we live in such a way to hide from others. The thing that drives you, maybe, maybe it's work. You have learned to work hard, to be busy, to work till you're exhausted. You're, you're trying to cover yourself with work. For those that need to serve, you have to, you have to be the one to do it all, to be there no matter what. You, you cannot disappoint. And in that, you're just trying to cover up. Or the parent here that has to have the same childhood for their kids. And so you strive to give them all that you had. A good Christmas is a pile of presents under the tree. And so you have to celebrate this holiday and every holiday with something extra special because they have to remember this, all of which are ways to cover up. Or you're an extremely private person. No one should know who you are. You have to put up the tough exterior. You have to prove to them that you can make it on your own. Or the person here that has to, to look good, they have to dress nicely. You have to have your hair done just right, your clothes and your makeup. You have to be married, perhaps, so then to be accepted. It's all there. They're all attempts to cover up. 
to hide something. Or even those that have to have a perfect attendance for church. You're always here. You're always served. You tithe faithfully. And you have a ministry at church. And if anyone dares to take that ministry from you, to even question that someone else could have that ministry, you're going to take off their head. Why? Because you're using religion, your services, to God to cover up. Is your presence at church out of love for the Savior or out of fear that someone might think ill of you? It's all there as a cover-up. And you know, what are those things? Relationships, work, service, do you know? Genesis says, Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together. These things... Relationships, work, service, you name it. They're all fig leaves. They're all coverings that we have brought on ourselves to cover up who we are. They're there to cover up what we're afraid of. Work, service, supply, clothes. They're all fig leaves. You feel you're not covered and that you're not accepted. And you look frantically to cover up. I need to cover myself. I cannot let anyone see me for who I truly am. But God sees you. He sees all of you. And just like Adam and Eve, we hate it. Our sin causes us to hate the gaze of God into our lives. I read a story this week of a pastor who was speaking to a group of students at a college campus. And at the college campus, after he was done speaking, a young college woman stayed behind and came up and said, I think your views are narrow-minded, and I don't know how anybody can believe that stuff anymore. I just don't believe it anymore. And the pastor asked a few questions and found out this woman was raised in a traditional Christian home. In fact, this was only her freshman year. And not only that, she had brought a Bible to school and actually had only given up her faith that year. And he said, well, when did you stop believing? And she said, around Thanksgiving. It just didn't make any sense to me anymore. And he asked, is there anything that happened to you in that time? I mean, did you go through any changes? Was there any kind of major change in your life that happened to you at this time? And very hesitantly, it came out that she had moved in with a boyfriend and had gone against the Christian teaching that she had been raised. And suddenly the pastor realized why it didn't make sense suddenly to hear this change. It was the fact that she couldn't stand the gaze of God into her life. Her Irreligion and all of her intellectual arguments were all reasons why. Well, what about all the heathens who had never heard about Christ? Or how in the world can you believe in the Bible? I mean, it's full of contradictions. All of those intellectual uh, questions, all the skepticism was her irreligion. And all of it was, it was a bunch of fig leaves to cover herself because she couldn't stand the gaze of God into her life. It was a desperate desire to get out from underneath God's gaze into her life. She had to hide. And so she rejected God. This is why your neighbor rejects the gospel. They don't want to recognize that God sees them for who they are. This is why your kids and other family members reject God and run from him. They know that God sees them. They're afraid to look, and, to, and, and, and so they cover themselves with fig leaves. No matter how hard you try to patch up your own righteousness, God sees you. 
And you, you feel this and you know this. You know you can't hide. You know that you're guilty. You can't avoid it. You can't cover yourself. And the truth that is needed to hear in that moment is that you have a rescuer. You need someone to come cover you. And Adam and Eve, caught in their open rebellion of God, are now aware of their nakedness, and they're ashamed. And they blame other people, but God knows. They stand naked now, unable to hide their sin. They need a rescue, and they don't even realize it. But God doesn't leave them. He, he gives them a promise. He gives them a promise of Christmas. See, this is it, friends. Don't, don't get caught up with all the decorations of Christmas and all the traditions. It doesn't matter if you have a tree or any of that stuff. It doesn't matter. Don't confuse with any of that stuff for the meaning of Christmas. This is it. That God has promised a way out of this mess. As God has given a way. And that's third, the promise given. God answers the threat of his enemy, Satan. Verse 14, he says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring, the seed, and her offspring, the seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. See, Christmas reminds us that God did not leave us naked and ashamed. He didn't leave us doomed to the enemy. That God would send a rescuer. You know, verse 15 is called by theologians the proto-evangelum. It's the first gospel message. It points to the significance of Christmas because it's all about the gospel. And what's the gospel, friends? I feel like I need to remind you again, right? What are the four parts of the gospel that I've shared multiple times? God, do you see it in the scripture here in Genesis 3? That God is holy and God is just. And God lays out how you should live your life. But man... How does man respond to God in Genesis 3? God, man spurns God and says, I'll live my own way. I want to be like you. I want to be in control. And so this is chasm now. And then in Genesis 3.15, Christ is promised. And so God is holy. Man is not, and Christ is going to come as the promise given to satisfy God's holy wrath to do our sin. And we need to respond. So don't tell me you can't share the gospel, friends. You can share the gospel with those that you come in contact with. In fact, we just gave you that, right? Genesis 3. If you're curious how to talk about it with your family at Christmas, go to Genesis 3. They'll be shocked. Genesis 3, and then walk them through the gospel. Because Christmas is all about a rescuer. And we, I'm sure, I, I do, have great traditions of the family surrounding this holiday. But it's not about that. It's about this. What captures my heart during this holiday is the eternal significance of what it represents. And if you're here this morning and Christmas is only the hour celebrations, put it all away and read Genesis 3. Because the, the idea of Christmas comes as a result of this chapter. Adam and Eve fall. They sin. They're naked, ashamed, unable to save themselves. And they brought reproach upon themselves and all that would come after them. And what hope did they have? What future is there now? They're naked and afraid. They need someone to cover them up. We need God to cover us up. And our only answer to the sin issue is for us to be naked and not ashamed. 
Romans 4, 7 and 8. Blessed are those who lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. We have God who says he can cover us up. He can cover all of our sins, all of our nakedness, all of our shame. We can't do it ourselves. We can't cover up. If we try, we fail. We're, we won't be able to do it. God says throughout the Bible, I am the God who covers your sins. Do you remember the book of Hosea where Hosea finds his wife who's been sold into slavery and she's up in the slave block and she's naked and he buys her back at great cost in spite of what she has done to him. He covers her up and he gives her a dignity back. And then the Lord says, this is how I will treat you. I will cover you. In Isaiah 61, where the prophet says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul exalts in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. See, friends, it's all throughout the scriptures. God, he is the one who does this. He is the one who covers them. And God comes and says, you have to get out from behind the tree, Adam and Eve. The only way to recover from the trauma that's happened in your life is to admit what you've done, to recognize who you are. You have to understand that and own it, and I will clothe you. I will cover your sin. You'll be naked and not ashamed. But in the garden, it was only temporary. Adam and Eve, the covering that God brings in verse 20 was only temporary, but what God has done through Jesus Christ is eternal. And how has he done it? Paul says in Romans 4, 7 that I read earlier. He's talking about what it means to receive Christ as Savior. He's talking about what it means to have Christ as King over your life. He says, blessed are those who, whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord will not impute sin. This is talking about imputation that Christ has covered our sin on the cross. You go for a meal with a friend and when the check comes, they say, I've got you covered. What are they doing? They're paying for it, imputing to you. It is a term of accounting to pay for something. God imputed Christ's righteousness on our account when he died on the cross for us. He's got you covered when your faith is in him. And God says to Adam and Eve, I will send the rescuer. He'll be born of a virgin and he will come to rescue you from your sins. And he will crush this old foe, this coward, this liar. Jesus comes and covers us through his death on the cross. If you remember at the beginning this morning, I mentioned that Christmas is really about war. And the only way to receive a rescue in the midst of war is to admit that you're at war. I mentioned this, I think, last year. Received some laughter from it. But you, you can only receive a gift if you admit that you need it. In other words, if, if you're having trouble sleeping at night and a friend stops by your house at 8 o'clock with a Starbucks, you're going to politely decline so that you can sleep. Or if you have a full head of hair and at the Christmas party you get a box of Rogaine, you're going to, I don't need that. See, the reason most people don't have any peace with God is it's because they don't believe that they're at war with God. They just keep trying to cover themselves, trying to hide from the all-seeing eyes of God, but they're never successful. They always fail at trying to cover themselves. And Paul says in Romans 8, 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. This is a radical statement, friends. 
This is a statement that people do not want to come to grips with. They want to hide from this truth. They want to cover up. They might think that their natural condition towards God is that of ignorance. When the scripture repeatedly says that their natural condition is enmity. Your natural condition is not one of indifference to God, but it's hostility. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you cannot cover up, you cannot hide. You need reconciliation with God. Do you hear me, friends? Your natural inclination is to try to cover yourself, to hide, but God sees you, he knows you, and he sent his son to be the cover that you need. And God brought you here this morning to be confronted with the truth of God's word. God is the only one who can cover you. And the way this covering has come for us is through the gift of Jesus Christ. Most people don't know how to accept a gift because we don't want to be vulnerable. You have to show some vulnerability to accept a gift that you know you need. You have to admit your need. You have to recognize it. Friends, this is why Christmas is so important. It shows your greatest need and the greatest gift of all, Jesus Christ. And friends, if this is you this morning, you need to turn from your sinful life of hiding from God, trying to cover yourself. And recognize that only through Jesus Christ and his work on the cross, you can be naked and unashamed before God. Christmas reminds us again, Spurgeon said, that the infinite became infant. Why? To die for me. To die for you. And I would implore you, friends, to repent from your way of life and turn from your sins and trust in Christ today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word that teaches us and guides us and leads us to understand who you are. I pray that your word would sink deep into our hearts this afternoon and this week, that as you give us opportunities to to go and to live and, and to work in this world, that you open up doors for us to share this glorious gospel with those who desperately need it. As we leave, we recognize in our own lives ways that we're trying to cover up, knowing that the gaze of God is there, but also, God, all of those that we know in our lives that we see this, we see it evidenced right before us. They're trying to cover using fig leaves in life of work or, or, or their family or things that they know, they know they need to be loved and accepted, but they, they don't believe that they can have both. And we know from your word that it's only possible through Jesus Christ that you can love us and accept us based on what Christ has done for us. I pray that we will be reminded of that this morning and that you would work in the hearts of those that have been confronted with this truth for the very first time. That you would save them. That you would give them faith to believe. We thank you for this time. May be honored and glorified as we as we finish this service and song. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.